The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult a healthcare professional with any medical questions and concerns. If you are experiencing an emergency or need immediate help, call 911. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a therapeutic relationship. I just get so angry. It's hard to sit still. I don't want to be this way. My brain just feels all scrambled. Hello and welcome to Scrambled. I'm your co-host, Chad Douglas. And I'm Nikki Shields. This is episode 16, and uh, it's kind of a long title, but we said this episode is brought to us by the letters I-E-P and the numbers 504. And one thing we wanted to talk about, Nikki, um, in this whole series was how other entities can help in school. So we all know as a co-host of this show, the reason it exists is because my son lives with anxiety. And so we, my wife and I were eyes were blown wide open when we heard the word 504. Our son's second grade teacher says, you should consider this before he goes into third grade. And we're like, okay, what? Because I'd never heard of a 504, had no idea what it is, what it can help. Then once we had the 504 meeting with school staff, I was blown away at everything they could do to help him along. So we wanted to kind of explain um, to parents of kids with anxiety of things that can help and the school district can do and are very willing to help out. So for this episode, we've got a special guest. Uh, we have with us Kristen, who is a the coordinator of special education for a school district. Um, she has been doing her job for six years and is here to talk with us a little bit about what we need to know, what parents need to know about how the school can help when your child is having mental health issues. Welcome, Kristen. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. The first question I have is, in your six years of doing this, what changes have you seen regarding mental health and children and how schools can help? Oh, the biggest change would be that mental health has become more important. It's a bigger concern in every way, shape, and form. One, students are showing more mental health issues. Hmm. Two, there's more information about it. So schools are slowly but also effectively learning what they can do to support those students that are showing some mental health issues. Kristen, in your work, to what extent do you deal directly with childhood mental illness? What does it look like? Where do you see it? I'm going to say it depends on the day. In my current position, I do a lot of facilitating as far as what adults should do to help the children or Sometimes I just take it into my own hands and go down and talk to the kid and try to figure out what's going on. I'm not a trained counselor, but sometimes that's all it takes is somebody saying, hey, why are you doing this? And then they tell you. Hmm. For me, I really enjoy facilitating what the adults can do differently, which is why I'm a special ed coordinator, because I can make a difference in students' lives through other people. What are the most common signs of mental health issues that teachers and school staff members see? Uh, students acting out all ages, and it looks different for a high schooler than it does for a young elementary student. Mm. Um, they might see more uh, disruption in the class as they're older. They might see more crying from younger students. There might be uh, behaviors that you're like, why? What? What? Where did that come from? Why are you behaving this way? All age groups are totally different, but you know what? Every child is different. The experiences they've had in their life have led to different types of behaviors in the classroom. The most common that we see is disruption. 
just getting up out of their seat or saying things out of turn or whatever, just getting in the way of the learning for themselves and for everyone else in the classroom too. So for things like that, you can do what's called a 504. Mm -hmm. Explain to us what a 504 is and if you know how to get its name. Oh, well, the 504 part would have come from the law that it came from. Okay. I do know 504s is more of a gen ed type thing and that Students that have a 504 will remain within their typical general education classroom and accommodations will be provided to them to help them be more successful. Some common accommodations, especially if we're seeing anxiety, ADHD type behaviors, maybe extended time, regular check-in with the student, test read aloud, that kind of thing. Expand a little bit on extended time. Extended time for what? Well, it depends on the kid because everything's individualized. Mm -hmm. So it it may be extended time on a daily assignment. Maybe they have two class periods to get it done instead of one. It could be extended time on assessments. Typically, they say that's one and a half times. So you're allowed Mm -hmm. the amount of time that everybody else has. Plus, you can take a little more time the next day to work on it if you need to. Often, at least in our school district, if students have extended time, they are allowed to have the test read to them or go to a smaller setting where there's fewer distractions as well. So a lot of times having the test read to them keeps them on track, keeps their mind focused on what they should be doing. And being in a smaller setting, there's fewer kids to distract them. There's not other things in the classroom that could be getting in the way of them focusing on their test. If a kid is this playing disruptive behavior in the classroom. At what point is it a red flag or at, at what point does it indicate the possibility that a 504 plan should be considered? What what would kind of tip the scale and, and push things that direction? The severity, of course, and the frequency. Um, so if you have a child that's doing this repeatedly for more than a week, the teacher's going to reach out to administration, reach out to the school counselor, perhaps me if there's a concern for uh, learning issues. And they're going to be like, what are your ideas? What are some things that we can do to help to support this child a little bit further? Um, The state requires PBIS. Have you guys heard of that? Yep. Yep. So the positive behavior intervention systems, while they can be strong in some places and not so strong in other places, they're really a good way to provide support for those students that are showing disruptive behaviors on a regular basis. So often the 504 actually won't come into place until there's a diagnosis. Actually, they shouldn't legally come in until there is a diagnosis from a medical professional or um, repeated need in the classroom. And the teachers are seeing that and the team is in agreement that that's what the child needs. Um, So it's actually very complicated, but very individualized. Yeah. At what point are the parents brought in? There again, depends on severity of frequency. But generally, if a student is Um, showing behaviors for an ongoing couple, two, three weeks, hopefully the teacher's reaching out to the parent and saying, hey, what's going on? Is there something that you know or anything you'd recommend? And and so hopefully the parents get involved pretty quickly. Okay. I'm, you know, within two, three weeks. There are some cases where the school just kind of handles it. And then the parent comes in a little bit closer when there's a bigger issue, when it's time to get something else into place. But primarily it starts with staff and administration. Yes, most definitely. There are cases where the parents advocate for their child, and actually I recommend that. Okay. The parent may not always have the correct information or understand the process that schools are going through, Mm -hmm. but reaching out to teachers and reaching out to administrators and saying, I think my kid might have these issues. What can we do? 
then hopefully there's a meeting. Hopefully there's a conversation. Hopefully the parents are advocating for their child in a correct way so that the staff can work with parents and the child to get things on, on track. How successful have you seen a 504 be for a child? I've seen them be more successful than not. Typically, if a 504 is not quite enough and the accommodations are not meeting the needs of the kids, that means they've been through all of the behavior, positive behavior intervention supports. That means they see the school counselor. That means they've had the accommodations. They've been to doctors and there's something else going on, then that's when we can start looking at the IEP side of things. So, and especially when there's learning issues, the IEP needs to come into place. With knowing if it's successful or not really comes from the performance of the students in the classes. So if the grades are coming up, if the behaviors are reducing, then you know that the 504 is working. And most of the time it does. There's always an exception to the rule. There's Mm -hmm. always situations that come up or traumatic events happen in kids' lives and things change. And that's when we need to do more than just the 504. So, and I want to ask you about IEPs in a little bit, a little bit more detail. But before we get to that, is there anything else that you think parents or guardians need to know about what a 504 is and what it isn't? I think they need to know and understand it is a legal document. If there is one in place, it is something that their child has. The school has to follow it. It should be a team decision. It's not something where a parent can just walk in and say, my kid needs to have this. You have to do it. That's not going to get the child what they need to be successful at school. So working with the team that works with the child and advocating with positive words or no blaming, it it doesn't help to blame anybody if things aren't going well. So if you go in and work together and advocate for the child, things will go better. Things will be more smooth. The other thing that people need to know is sometimes even if they've gone to a medical doctor and they've gotten diagnoses or they're on medications or they have these recommendations from the doctors, that doesn't mean the school is seeing the same thing. Mm. And so the school isn't automatically going to do what is recommended by these doctors. They're going to consider it. They're going to read it. They're going to understand it. But they're not going to, if the child is not showing the same things at school that maybe they've shown at home or in the doctor's office, then the school doesn't see the need to put that those things into place. What happens if a teacher doesn't follow a 504? It's illegal and they can't not follow it. If there are concerns, I mean, we're all educators are human. Sometimes people just forget things. So the older chi- the older that the children get, the more we want them to learn to advocate for themselves and be like, "Hey, don't forget I need to have a little extra time on this." Or, "Hey, can I, you know, can I play with this fidget toy today because I'm really feeling anxious, but I just need it." advocating is really important. So when they're younger, it's really up to the parents to advocate for them. So if the parent comes to the teacher and says, hey, my kid has a 504, how come you're not following it? The teacher might be like, oh gosh, I just, it just left my mind for a few days. I'll get better at that. If there's a real concern with after communicating with the teachers, the parents aren't getting the results that they need, or the student's not making any improvements, then that's when the administration needs to be called and a meeting should happen and then the teacher can be put back on the right path. And I think it's important to, to remember too that, I, that hopefully everyone realizes that, that your child is one of 15, 20, 25, maybe more children. So, yeah. you know, in a single teacher classroom, even mm-hmm. a co-teacher classroom, that's a lot to handle. And so I think a, a, a nice appreciation of that, that they have a lot of little people that they're in charge of mm-hmm. while they're doing this and they're, they're doing the best they can for everyone that they have. Yep. yep. One thing I wanted to bring up the 504 is set, but you can also revisit. It's not like it's a set in stone kind of thing. You can revisit it every year, every six months, just kind of 
keep track and, and check in, but just know that once it's made, there can be changes made to it. 504s actually legally only have to be updated every three years, every three which years, okay. I don't, as an educator, that every kid's different every year. So we try, at least in the district I'm in, at least to have a meeting once a year, but a parent has a right to call a meeting whenever they want. Typically, if we have an, a 504 meeting, it's like maybe twice a year to definitely once a year. If I call the parent and I say, hey, how'd your kid doing? Do you want to have a meeting? How do you feel? And then I talk to the staff and they're like, he's doing fine. We don't change the 504. It stays right. and I'll just be like, hey, keep going. One thing that I wanted to bring up for parents is that the first time we went into a team meeting, it was intimidating. So parents, if you're going to do this, heads up. My wife and I walked in with our little notepads and we were ready to take some notes. And there were probably 12 to 15 staff sitting around a table, all with laptops. And I even said to break the ice, I'm like, are we invading a small country? Like it looked like the the situation room or the war room in the White House. So it was a little intimidating. But then once you realize that you're there advocating for your child, that team is there for your child and everyone is there to help that child succeed, the nerves went away. And again, the the team offered some ideas that I had no idea. So personalized to my son. I was like, wait, what? You can do that? You can have him spend a, a time and a half on a test? It can be read out loud? He What? <laughs> so go in with ideas and the, the team, our professionals, they're going to have ideas too. So, so be open to that. Before we get into IEPs, could we talk about behavior intervention plans or BIPs for just a second? Well, sure. Behavior intervention plans are for students that have those repeated behaviors. There's simple ones and there's complex ones. So the simple ones would just be working on one behavior. Maybe it's just raising your hand instead of yelling out. A complex one, which commonly the students that have um, an IEP already in place are going to have a more complex behavior intervention plan. The trick behind those behavior intervention plans is figuring out why they're doing the behavior that they're doing. Sometimes it's attention. Um, sometimes it's anger management. Sometimes it's um, avoidance, trying to get out of what they're being asked to do. And so figuring out the function will help identify what replacement behavior should be taught. And BIP trainings that I've been to, they teach you that you cannot expect them to go from one extreme to the other with one behavior plan. So the team needs to keep meeting and seeing if the behavior plan is working. There needs to be a step-by-step, like maybe the child's avoiding work. So the first step is to write their name on the paper. The second step that they learn is complete numbers one and two. You know what I mean? Like you just simplify what they're supposed to do, but it needs to meet the need of the function of the behavior. How often can you update a, a BIP plan or a BIP? As often as needed. Okay. Because it, it just depends on if the ch- if it's going well or not. Now, some districts have a process in place where they automatically meet every four to six weeks on mm. every behavior plan. They have more staff than some public schools do. So lucky them, and I'm very jealous. However, the data, there should be data collected with every behavior plan to show whether it's making a difference or not. If it's not making a difference, the team needs to get back together and make some adjustments. If it is making a difference and the data is showing that it's working, you don't need to make adjustments. So everything has needs to be data-based. So somehow it needs to be tracked. And what happens to that data? Oftentimes they use what's called a check-in, check-out system. Uh-huh. So throughout a school day, 
a child can earn so many points in each class, the highest points for doing exactly what they should do, and the lowest points for not doing anything they're supposed to do. In the meantime, the staff is supposed to be teaching the student what to do when they're not upset. So like say it's an anger management issue. Ideally, when the child is not angry is when they should be taught what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. Scaffolding how that is provided for them. So that data from the check-in, check-out then is looked at every so many weeks. And if there's improvement or they're meeting their goals every day, then great. We don't need to change anything. But if they're not meeting their goals and they're not making improvements, then that's when the behavior plan needs to change. I always think the child should be involved in that decision. Sometimes the adults kind of forget, even though they're there for the kids, but it's like the child needs to be in the room. Even if they're young, they need to be in the room and they need to know that all of this is for them and we're trying to help them to be better and they need to have a say. That's my personal belief. I believe some educators may not feel quite the same, but I think since it's about the kids, they need to be a part of the decision making. And I mean, your mind might get blown. The child might have an idea that might help him or her learn differently or or correct that behavior. Or maybe they were like, I never realized that because again, your child is one of many in that classroom. So I think that's... I, I agree with you. I think uh, I think the child should be involved in that. We we've talked about five hundred four plans. We've talked about BIPs, um, and now I would like to know what is an IEP. Why would a student need an IEP? It's my love. Um, <laughs> IEPs, individualized education plan. They are very complex, very complicated. They can be for students with learning difficulties. They can be for students with emotional disabilities that are, it's getting in the, whatever it is, is getting in the way of the child's education. So an IEP is going to have, it's a team thing. So there needs to be a school psychologist, there needs to be a school administrator, there needs to be teachers. The parents are a part of this process. They all get this legal document explaining the procedural safeguards in the beginning, and they need to be a part of every decision made on the IEP. So what's different about an IEP than a 504, there are goals written according to what the child needs to work on. So they might be a a reading comprehension goal, or there might be a understanding numbers goal, or there might be a word problem goal, or maybe a goal related to a behavior plan that's written in the IEP because the student is struggling emotionally and with behaviors. So there's going to be a goal to help keep that data and keep track of how they're doing. The best thing I think about an IEP is that it is a team decision. It is a working document. So changes can be made as the child changes. As a team, you're able to get together. I mean, that scheduling is difficult, as we know, but getting together and everybody getting on the same page for that child makes all the difference. IEPs often, they do result in some sort of special education or related service and or related service like occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, physical therapy, counseling minutes, or social work minutes. Is that also how you get like a paraeducator mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with the child? Yeah. It, so you have to have an IEP to get the, yeah. the paraeducator? Yes, typically. Okay. Sometimes schools are just like, yeah, they, well, this adult is going to be around this child a lot, and then there's not necessarily paperwork. But there should be paperwork. There should be something to back that up in in. Uh, around where we live, we're required to have a specific form if a child has a uh, one-on-one paraeducator to prove the need for the paraeducator. And then there has to be a goal written in the IEP in relation to the para or the child becoming more independent so that the para can kind of work themselves out of a job. 
as they say. Every one of them is different. No IEP should be the same as the students next to them. If they have special education services in a special education classroom, they may go into that classroom for whatever of whatever subjects they're needing support in. We do have a, a few students with the emotional disability eligibility for the IEP. So they may still be mostly in gen ed classes, but have related services of a social worker or have a 20 minute time period every day where they have to meet with certain staff that supports them. Unfortunately, in our area, oftentimes students that have the ED or emotional disability eligibility for an IEP may end up in an alternative type setting just because they have more staff and are able to provide therapy for them that a public school may not be able to do. Which again, it's all best for the child. Absolutely. That's the plan. And and the law is least restrictive environment, no matter what. So if a child can be successful in the general education classroom for most of the day, except for a certain subject, then they might just see a special ed teacher for just one subject. So least restrictive environment is where we're going with IEPs. Kristen, you said earlier that a 504 is oftentimes started by school staff recognizing that there's a need and working together. And then, and sometimes parents will come in and ask mm-hmm. um, about that. But what about an IEP? Is that always initiated by school staff? Can, can mm-hmm. parents ask for that? Like what kind of gets the ball rolling there? Both. Either staff can refer and we can look into and decide if more assessments are needed or we have on occasion a parent more, ah, a couple times every year, a parent will request to have testing done to see if the child's eligible for an IEP. In our district, we are lucky enough to be able to say, all right, let's do it. Let's find out. 50% of the time, they're not eligible for an IEP, but maybe a 504 with accommodations is what they need. Other districts, if they are keeping the data and they are having to sit down with the parent to explain why they think that testing for an IEP isn't appropriate at this time, that can happen. That does happen. But the parent has the right to advocate for their child and the school should hear them out. Now, obviously, Kristen, you can only, you you work in a single district, so you can't speak for every district in the country, but how much training is made available to folks such as yourself in special education, to counselors, to um, district therapists, to teachers, how much continuing education is is available these days? There's a lot available. Mm -hmm. Finding it and finding the time to do it is the hardship. Okay. I'm just, uh, I'll just say I, I'm on the board for College for Life, and I am learning about new resources that I had no idea existed, but I fully intend to share them with the parents that I work with because they can reach out and ask these questions of the professionals in that area. So as far as, I mean, teachers are required to have so many professional developmental hours in every mm-hmm. five years. I want to say it's like 200 or something. It's a pretty good chunk. So we are required to have more professional development. We can go to workshops, we can get online, we can do webinars. That has become a huge thing since COVID. Um, Things where we used to attend in person, like downstate or something, they're online now. So we can stay at home in our pajamas (laughs) and do our laundry while watching these webinars and learning stuff. Same with recording podcasts. It really, it depends. Teachers and educators, somebody in my position, I have a dual master's degree by choice because special ed's my passion. So it's worked out for me. People that are higher than me have a special certificate that I don't have. But a teacher honestly could have the same job that I have. I just happen to have the dual master's. So. What else do parents and guardians need to know about the IEP process and you know how it, it could help or, you know, 
I, I don't want to say hinder, but um, is there just any any red flags to watch for, any concerns to be aware of that you haven't mentioned? I think as long as parents come in willing to work as a team and work with the schools instead of against the schools, mm-hmm. well, how dare you not do this for my kid or whatever, that gets nowhere. That only upsets people. So I think coming in, working together as a team, that the the correct thing can be done for each child. And I, I agree. And I said that earlier about coming in and knowing it's it's what's best for your child. You <laughs> may hear things that you don't like, or you may say things staff doesn't like, but everyone's there to help that child succeed in the best way they can. So I, I echo those thoughts, Kristen, of yeah. go and, and be supportive and don't yeah. don't go in defensively. Exactly. I do think it can be, like you said, it's intimidating to walk into those meetings mm-hmm. with the whole team of people there. Um, and eventually you learn the team is there for your child. Mm-hmm. The unfortunate truth is, especially in an IEP meeting, there's a lot of negativity that comes out about a child. And it's not to harm the child or to say bad things about the child. It's to help everyone understand where the concerns are and what can be done to help that child. You know, I've, I've told parents so many times, I'm so sorry we're saying all these things. Your child is amazing. Like, here are so many strengths we have to share with you still because your kid is amazing. In school, these are some of the issues we're seeing. That's hard for parents to hear and understand, but it's true. So just be ready for that, I guess. I also think from the parent's standpoint, it's nice to hear those things Mm -hmm. because you want to know people see your child, Mm -hmm. how you see their child, and you do see their strengths. And it's not all, as a society, we focus so much on the negative Mm -hmm. that it's like there's things to improve on, but we see how special this kiddo is or or their successes and celebrating their successes and making a big deal out of it and, and making them... So they can they can succeed in school because as adults, when you manage people, which is the hardest part of being a manager, in my opinion, you manage people differently. You parent your children differently. So in school, it makes sense that they can be treated differently with some of these 504 plans and IEPs to, to help them mm-hmm. succeed. It's all about what's best for the child. Exactly. Nikki, I have a question for you. How can parents deal with the whole emotion of this and the stress of this when the school calls and says, we want to have a meeting and discuss 504, IEP, VIP? What advice do you have for for those of us that go through this? I thought you were going to say RSVP and- Asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'm going to sound like a broken record probably here, but but part of it is just one, keeping in perspective what it's all about. Like if if the school is reaching out and saying, hey, we should meet, we have some ideas. um, It's because they want your child to be successful just like you do. It's pretty cool that we are living in a time where these things are discussed and talked about. Mm -hmm. I know when I was in school, I don't think kids had IEPs. I know we didn't have 504s. There there was just a limit to, I mean, that, that was always kind of one of the things when I was an anxious kid, well, we weren't talking about it and we certainly weren't making accommodations. And so recognizing that, yes, it is very stressful, but it's for a good purpose. And there are a lot of wonderful professionals there, you know, waiting to help connect with your child and get them the supports that they need. Um, you know, but but also you, you do have to vent, you know, you have to find that friend or support a family member that you can just kind of unload the worries to. You don't want to vent to your child. You know, they're they're already having a hard time, but find another trusted adult or, or person in your life and, and kind of unload the frustrations of it, but then kind of come back to ground zero, which is we're in this to try to find the best plan for, for this kid. And yeah. it's great that these, you know, teachers and professionals want to help us do that. Kristen, as an educator, how can you tell the difference between the behavior caused by mental health issue versus behavior that's maybe just behavior? Is there a difference? I think every behavior has a purpose. It may be minor, 
It may be they didn't eat breakfast that day and they just need a granola bar. It may be something huge that needs some really intense therapy too. But every behavior has a reason. Figuring out what that reason is is going to be the first step to finding out or to making it better and to making it go away. So you're saying that behavior is a form of communication and there's yes. always something underlying it. Gosh, that is music brand to new my information. Ears. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Never heard that before. What? <laughs> I know it's surprising. But it's true. <laughs> Kristen, what's the, the oddest request that's been asked for that has been maybe beneficial to the child once it was implemented? I know one for, for my son that was allowed that, again, kind of blew my mind was he's allowed to listen to music. And oh. I told him when I was a kid, I had a friend who back in the 80s, you had the little wire headband with the foam ear things. He took it apart and then fed the wire up under his sleeve and put the foam ear pod or uh, earbud whatever they were called headphone in his palm and he would just lay his head on his shoulder and he jammed out to music all day and didn't listen to school so that was always frowned upon right because once he was discovered we're like nice one buddy but whoops yeah but now my son can can do that and it's approved that's actually a really good example because uh, we do have a couple of students that are occupational therapists their doctor and the parents have all said why don't you try this? And it's always a trial basis. We never just say, hey, you can do this no matter what. But it has worked for two kiddos I can think of to allow them to listen to music once the teacher is done teaching while they're working because they're not as distracted by the other people. There's typically a sound reduction type headphone used Mm -hmm. and it just makes makes a difference. And so good example, yes. Kristen, you've given a lot of tips and ideas and just kind of, you know, guidance for for how to embark on this sort of journey. But do you have any other advice for parents or guardians who are just sort of getting started, um, who maybe are recognizing that there's a problem, maybe they're already talking with school staff, just any any tips you would have for navigating that process successfully? I think ask questions, ask to talk to somebody in special education, ask to talk to a principal, but always come in working, willing to work with those that are talking to you. I think understanding that sometimes the student that is seen at home is different than the student that's seen at school and staff members might have a different viewpoint because like Chad has said, it's one of many kids in the school. And so staff members do often see kiddos differently than parents do. But sometimes it takes a parent saying, hey, notice this about my kid. And then we do. And it's like, oh, let's make these adjustments. Okay. So it just depends. Are there any other resources uh, that you would, you know, websites or books or, or just anything that you could refer parents to that might be having some questions? The ISB website for the state of Illinois has uh, several resources that parents can print out um, and start a binder. I would recommend keeping a binder of anything, any meeting, always have a copy However, the school is required to keep copies and get you copies if you need them um, of both 504s and IEPs. But if you keep that too, then you can come in and say, hey, it's right here. Let's do something with this. But that ISBE website right now is probably the best source. I do know the West Central Center for Independent Living. I work with a gal there quite often who comes in as an advocate for families at IEP meetings and having an advocate with you, they may hear things at the meeting that you don't hear. You know what I mean? Like they're you're writing things down or, um, and then they hear what is being said. So I think having an advocate or somebody with you mm-hmm. at the meetings 
can be very beneficial. And and I've worked with that advocate as well and familiar mm-hmm. with that and have suggested that for many families. And I know that's specific to our local area, mm-hmm. um, but I would assume that other areas yeah. also have educational advocates and it's just a matter All of doing the place. a Google search or, or asking you know schools mm-hmm. for more information. What do teachers and administrators wish that parents understood about what you do and do not do and how you can and cannot help kids? What do you what do you wish that the rest of us understood about what it's like to be a teacher for kids today? Oh man, it's really weighted. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is understanding the difference between the medical world and the school world. And I've mentioned it earlier, but just because a doctor recommends it doesn't mean that's what needs to happen in the school or doesn't mean that we don't already have something in place that's working and there's no reason for us to put more things down on paper and make a document when it's already happening and it's going really well. So I think it's just important for parents to just ask those questions and not, and again, come in working as a team. That's really just the most important thing. Before we head out here, Kristen, any last thoughts on 504s, BIPs, IEPs? My last thought has to do with the emotional health side of things. And I think school districts are doing more to build the support in those areas, knowing that the emotional difficulties um, are growing or are needing more attention for whatever reason. But many times a school has a school counselor or a school social worker or both. And those two people are really good um, resources to reach out to. It may be a good starting point. Krista, we thank you so much for being part of this episode, and you've given some great information for parents um, and students if they listen to this of, of different ways they can help, and also from the education standpoint of things they can listen to maybe from the parent standpoint. We appreciate your time. Just a reminder that we do have a Facebook page. We encourage you to interact with us. We also ask you to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. As we've said before in many episodes, the more ratings and reviews we get, the higher up the podcast charts we go and uh, the more ears get on this podcast. And our whole goal is to start a conversation and that conversation continues with you. Our next episode will be episode 17 and we're going to talk about extracurricular activities and anxiety and how those two kind of play together. So we appreciate you listening. If you know someone who can benefit from the Scramble podcast, please, please share it.